This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Victoria Vanstone, welcome to Better Reading. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here, even though you're all the way over in the other side of the world. I am. I'm in San Francisco and you are my first podcast for 2024. Oh, nice. I feel privileged. Thank you so much. (laughs) There you go. Now, Victoria Vanstone is the host of Sober Awkward a popular comedy podcast that tracks two former party animals as they navigate life without booze. Victoria started writing on the day she gave up alcohol and became a renowned oversharer on her blog called Drunk Mummy Sober Mummy. The Reform Party Girl is now on a mission to help others get stuck in a pattern of normalised social binge drinking. She's here today to talk about her memoir, A Thousand Wasted Sundays. It's hilarious, heartfelt memoir about partying, parenting and sobriety. It's so timely on so many levels for me because I, and people who listen to this podcast will know this, I got really, really sick in June, like really sick. Um, Yes, and they had to take out part of my liver, right? Mm. Anyway, full recovery, lucky the liver grows back. It had mm-hmm. nothing to do with alcohol. Um, I got this terrible infection. But anyway, and the doctors didn't tell me to stop drinking and I would have just called myself a social drinker. Like, you know, I never drink alone. I only drink if I go out or if somebody comes comes over. But I am most highly social, so it was more frequent than most people. So I decided when I got home that I wasn't going to drink. I just didn't want to. Firstly, I didn't feel like it because I was so sick. And then I just decided I'm just not going to do it for a while. Do you know, it is almost as socially awkward to some people as getting blind drunk. Oh, gosh, yeah, it's even more so because at least everyone's drunk and they forget about the awkwardness, whereas if people are sober, you're stepping into a situation where not only are you confronted by it, but the people there are confronted by it because it's like holding a mirror up to them saying, I don't drink, but you too, and now there's kind of some weird disconnect and it's kind of very, very difficult to navigate. Almost everyone, every time I went out or every time someone came over, they would say, oh, are you drinking yet? Yeah, (laughs) of course, one won't hurt. Those elbow twisters are very common. And I know them because I was one. I call myself a beer bully throughout my life. I was the person. You know, if someone said to me, I'm not drinking tonight, I was all over them like a rash. I wasn't very sympathetic towards the non-drinker, which of course I am now. I'm very much like an (laughs) ex-smoker. Yeah, yeah. It's really, I'd never thought about it. I'd never thought about it on any level, really. I love I love white wine. I like to have a drink. That's my drink of choice. 
And I never really noticed whether other people were drinking or not. I wasn't one yeah. of those people where I didn't have to, if you didn't want a glass of wine, you could have whatever you like. I'm going to yeah. have a cold glass of wine. I think but, one of my things was that um, I wanted to be people, I wanted people to be as drunk as me because I, if I couldn't remember my behaviour, I didn't want anyone else to remember yeah. it either. Yes. <laughs> so it was a sort of tribal mentality where yes. I felt safe, safety in numbers if mm. everyone was as pissed as I was. Yeah. But there's even those, like with me, there were just people that would that I'd call, I don't know, regular drinkers who'd have maybe two or three glasses a week and they would come over and, oh, so you're not going to have a glass of wine with me. Mm. No, but don't worry about it because I don't mind you having a glass of wine. I'm just yeah. not going to have one myself. Alcohol is so much part of our life, whether we drink or whether we don't drink. Yeah, 100%. I totally agree with you. I mean, it's always been part of my life. And I often say to people, I never felt like I really had a choice when it came to alcohol. I was a kind of cookie cutter party girl from the day that I was born. Every influence out there, cultural, environmental, generational, it was all over me from the day I was born. And I don't think really that I grew up in an environment where I had any choice whatsoever about whether to drink or not. It was kind of shoved down my neck from an early age, not physically, but mentally and emotionally probably. I always saw that drinking made people happy, so therefore I didn't question it. I didn't look at the dark side. I'd probably always already gone to bed by the time people were sort of vomiting in the punch bowl. Mm. But I just saw it as a way of connecting and making friends and being part of something. I didn't have a lot of trauma growing up, so it's not like I'm filling a void. It was me just doing a very normal, socially acceptable binge drinking habit that I saw all around me as a child and I just absorbed that behaviour. So when I talk about drinking, I'm never talking about an extreme. I'm never talking about somebody, you know, clutching a bottle of Jack Daniels to their chest on a park bench. You know, I'm not talking about an extreme. I'm talking about a place between the pub and an AA meeting where many of us sit, where most of the world sit. They call it grey area drinking now. I call it sort of my Pinot Gris purgatory, where I got stuck not knowing I was deserving of help or not knowing that I had a problem. So this sort of area is really becoming more, you know, out there on the media and in newspapers and in books and everything as people are starting to recognise that any amount of alcohol isn't good for you and looking beyond it for once, which is really lovely to see. Mm. So is there a, an amount of alcohol that is? You know, I remember going to the doctor years ago, right, and yeah. um, she asked me, you know, you, I don't know, whatever it was, and are you a smoker? You know, and I said, no, uh, do you drink? I said, well, I drink, I think I have two. She said, no, 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 it's a yes or a no answer. Okay, I love that. Yeah. See, I'm on her side. <laughs> like, I know that the World Health Organization now say that no amount of alcohol is safe because it is a, I know we're going to bring it down to the nitty gritty and it sounds really extreme, but it is a class A carcinogen along with smoking, alcohol, asbestos and radiation. <gasps> there are four. And wow. in America, there's 40,000 new cases of breast cancer every year that are related to alcohol consumption. We don't really look at cancer and alcohol very much. There's a really good episode of my podcast coming up on that, actually. You know, the facts are out there, but we choose to ignore them because that's how we socialize as a, as a culture. So people aren't willing to look at the in 
in deep details of it. And I, I know I never did. I didn't want to hear those facts because I was too busy what I thought was having fun. And of course, when you get sober, you have to reframe what fun is and learn different ways of having fun that don't involve me sort of puking on someone's shoes. But I think we are learning slowly that alcohol, any amount, will raise your anxiety, possibly give you mental health issues, and it causes all sort of mental preoccupation. And I think a lot of what my book is about is it's not about the amount. It's about your own mental relationship with alcohol and whether it's having negative impact on your life. And those are the two questions that I really ask people to say to themselves, like, is this helping me? Is this doing me any good? And do I have an issue? And if you are thinking about it and if it's the only way you can socialize and if it's the only way you can imagine ever going out with other people, then perhaps it is a problem because I think we shouldn't have to do that. We shouldn't have to have these social top-ups like, why aren't we enough? Mm. But Mm. all of society is designed to, you know, you go to a restaurant and you're going to have a glass of wine. There's always a, you know, I love it. I love it. I'm not being critical of people. And you go to a bar. I mean, you're going to drink alcohol. And there are more of those places than there is anything else. Of course, because it's just such a long ingrained culture. It's a habit and a tradition that has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. And it's like, I know that the um, the stats here in Australia are just so high of people now stopping that habit, that there is a sort of new wave of people questioning it. And that's what really that sober curious scene, it's not saying it's good or bad or what you should do or mm. what you shouldn't do. It's about questioning why we feel like we need a drink in a social situation and really delving into that. That's what sobriety is. I thought it was just about giving up drinking, but actually it's about delving into the reasons why I felt like I needed a drink in social situations. And it was to do with social anxiety. It was to do with people pleasing and learning as a woman now to step into those situations, those bars and restaurants and make a choice and go, actually, I'm going to authentically enjoy this situation without knowing out without having a top up and without feeling any other different way apart from myself is a really interesting way to be I've discovered I'd never tried that before I usually had like a couple of beers or a few glasses of wine before I even entered that situation so I'd never experienced a social interaction without alcohol before and I often say like booze gets a lot of credit booze gets the credit for a good night out with most people and What I've realized now is the things that it was getting credit for, like the music being good and us having a dance and relaxing and having and bonding and all of those things that we think booze gives us, it's actually not. We we give it the credit for a good night out, but I go out for a good night now and it's, you know, it is the good music that makes me happy. It's the people that I spend time with and it's coming home the next day and knowing that I feel good and I'm not going to have anxiety from being so hungover. So it's just a matter of trying it, like mm. whether the situation is better or not. It's something that practice makes perfect and you wouldn't know unless you tried going out for a sober night out, which, of course, can be quite awkward at first. Okay, tell me about your journey. I mean, tell me about how you got here. So you just talked about how you grew up around alcohol. Talk to me about the party life and when it was, when that moment hit, when you decided, okay, I'm going to give this a go. I'd like to say that it was quick and I went, oh, yes, that's okay. I'm going to stop that now. Something bad's happened. But those red flags had to fly and whack me in the face for many, many years before I even stopped to sort of pause the show. 
I grew up, as I said, in a family that were all big drinkers. It was always a very frivolous sort of happy drinking. It was never alone. It was always social. So I never questioned it. And when I left home and went to uni, I carried on, you know, I held the family mantle high and just thought, well, I'm going to be the hostess with the mostess, just like my parents were. And that led to recreational drug use and promiscuity. There was a bullying situation at school where my two best friends kind of walked away from me one day. And I think my need to entertain and keep friends kind of went up a notch at that stage because I got scared about people not liking me after I'd lost two really close friends. So the only way I knew how to really entertain people from that moment on was to, you know, be the party girl and be the person Mm. that was bringing the fun. So that sort of carried on. And it was probably a bit toxic, actually. My need to entertain overwhelmed my self-care a little bit. And I just was the last man standing for many, many years because I wanted people to stay. I wanted people to like me. And I ended up going traveling around the world. I got arrested. I blew a finger off with a firework. All of these things that were happening because my drinking was really getting out of control because I I wanted to be the last person up at the end of a night because I thought that was what everybody did and what everybody wanted. It wasn't until I had children and met my husband that I had to question my alcohol intake for the first time. Of course, there's nothing quite like a child for you to have some consequences. And before that, I'd always ran away from them. And I moved to Australia. I'd met my husband and I went from being, you know, a traveler, an independent woman, you know, seeing the world to being having a baby and being stuck at home in a flat. And I found that transition very difficult. Mm -hmm. So, of course, as any mother would do, in fact, a lot of mums do, I gave up drinking Mm. the day I I, I got pregnant and then I found myself yearning for a night out after the baby was born. And it didn't take very long before, you know, six weeks in when your life's all upside down and you're covered in poo and nappies and washing that I was gagging for a night out. So I then established a new pattern of drinking, which was not kind of every day with no consequences. It was a a gap between and then a binge. Mm. I'd get the mummy mates out and we'd go, right, we've done this parenting really well. Let's now go out and get wasted. So a new pattern emerged of me sort of numbing out this boring role that I found quite confronting of motherhood and, and mundane. It wasn't me. I was this party girl and I had to have this transition into motherhood, which I found quite uncomfortable. So I always wanted to find that old me again. So I started dipping into the old me. I, I'm still me. I'm still independent. I can, And the only way I knew how to do that was to drink. So that carried on for about four years until I actually really began to question what I was doing because I started to get massive anxiety every time I drank because, of course, I couldn't look after my baby the next day. Mm. Okay, so did you have a career? Talk to me about that and talk to me about why you found parenting so difficult. I had never really had a career. I was one of those persons. I'm not very good with authority. I always enter anything on an equal plane. And when mm-hmm. people start being kind of jumped up office people, I'm like, I'm out. I can't cope with this. So I've had loads of jobs, like 
cafes where I think I fixed fridges for a while. I worked in bars. I had bars in Thailand for years. Of course, that was the perfect job for me. I had this beautiful Rasta boyfriend who we had a, a, a boat that had washed up from the ocean and we turned it into a bar. It was all quite romantic and lovely. So of course, a bar was a perfect place to me because I could hide a normal drinking habit within my environment. Again, that was a good, that was a good way of hiding it. But I had all sorts of jobs. Eventually, I worked on the markets. I imported jewellery from Thailand and sold it on the markets here in Australia. So I was a market worker. I've always loved that because, and I did it in France as well for many years. I loved that because if I was hungover, I could, I didn't have to show up, like I mm. could, or I could turn up hungover and it didn't really matter. So my careers, I think, I had more of a drinking career and I had other jobs that were surrounding that that always made me enough money for my next ticket somewhere or for my food the next day. I would never really led a very sort of um, normal life in that respect, I would say. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What was your drink of choice? Beer, normally beer. beer. Mm-hmm. Very normal, very socially acceptable. I was always last man standing, but I hung around with people that were as well. So I don't think you would have ever picked me out of the crowd as having a problem. My drinking was sort of cleverly diluted into the people that I surrounded myself with. Mm-hmm. So then you get get married and you have a baby. Talk to me about that. And you've you said a couple of times that you found that hard. Why? Just because it was so different from what I'd been doing before. Mm. I always wanted children. Um, I don't know what I expected. I found the pregnancy hard. I found living in a place where I didn't know that many people hard. And I found the isolation of it overwhelming. You know, as I said, I, I'd been riding camels in the Sahara and having bars and, you know, live, going to Nepal and trekking. I'd been doing whatever I wanted for years. And all of a sudden there was somebody there that I was 100% responsible for. And I didn't feel mentally prepared. And I don't think even to the point when they hand you that newborn baby at the hospital that you go, oh, right, so now I have to change and I have to be a mum. And I don't think I was ready for it. And I found it really, really hard. So that just led to a different style of being me, which I wasn't really happy with. I wanted to stick the baby in a backpack and travel, keep going, but that didn't happen. And the more that didn't happen, the more kind of upset I felt. But I love that child more than anything else. And I wanted to be the best mum. But as I said, 
my only way out of that feeling was to go out and just to have a night off, which mums do, which of course leads to this massive mummy wine culture, which is so prevalent here and, and in most of the world. You know, we feel like we deserve an out. We've mm. done well and we've got a reward waiting for us at the end of the day. And I didn't realise, I didn't really think about that messaging at the time, like we're numbing out our kids and we're giving them this message that I have to drink to deal with your behaviour. I haven't thought about that ever since I've given up drinking. And now I think, gosh, actually, if I'd carried on, all I was saying to my kids was, I need this. I need this drug to deal with you. And I know that my messaging was really toxic now. And it's something that I wanted to break because I knew that my drinking was partly generational. And it was a a cycle. I wanted to be a, a cycle breaker with this. And I wanted to say, actually, I'm not going to carry this on because I want my kids to grow up having a choice. I know it's very likely that they will drink, but at least they will have a choice unlike I did. Mm, so when was the moment that you said, that's it, I'm done? I had a second child. I had my little Nelly. She was very tiny and I had to feed her with a syringe and I had a four-year-old as well. And it was all very overwhelming. And six weeks after she was born, even though I'd been having this terrible anxiety every time I drank, you know, I gave up drinking again as soon as I got pregnant with her. But when she was born, it was stressful. As Of course, with any newborn, it's a really difficult time, but we managed to get through it. And somebody invited me out for a drink and I was like, yes, I'm there straight away. I was like, yes, this, mm. this is what I need to do. I'm going to go out again and find a piece of me on some grubby dance floor. I only went to the local pub. I probably had too many pints within the first hour. I remember smoking in a doorway at one point. Like it goes off the rails pretty quick with me. It's not like, oh, I'm going to sit here with my pinky out and pretend to be all responsible. It's like, right, let's get the beers in. I'm going to promise I'm going to have one and then I'm ordering the bottle. There's no, there's no sort of restrictions. Once my inhibitions are out of the window, it's game over. So there's people that can drink and there's people that can't, and I'm one of them that can't, unfortunately. Mm. But I woke up that next morning and that anxiety monster, which I mention a lot in the book, was sitting at the end of my bed, just waiting to pounce on me, really. Mm. And it was just one hangover too much. I'd promised to be a good mum and I was failing and I was drinking. I was like, who is this person? It wasn't like I was drinking in the day. It was this normalised social binge drinking that was making me feel mentally unwell every Sunday. Hence, the book is called A Thousand Wasted Sundays. I walked into the lounge that morning and said to my husband, I cannot moderate. I've been trying for four years since we had George. I can't achieve it. I can't do it on my own. I go into that situation going, I'm going to do well. And as I said, and then I'm up at the bar. There's no two ways about this. This has got to stop. And I said, I need help. I think I need help because I can't do this on my own. I've proved that I can't do it. And he just said, okay, I think it's a good idea. Because I knew that I was incapable of looking after my children on a Sunday morning. I literally couldn't even move my head. I'd laughed it off for years, but the anxiety was getting so bad that something had to be done. And I got on the phone and I booked the first therapist that I found. Something on the website said, do you need to break free from addictions? And at that point I'd gone, if I can't stop something that I want to stop, 
Therefore, mm. I have a problem with it. And it was a confronting thought, quite honestly, because I'd never thought, I thought, I need to learn to drink better. I need to be, I need to have waters in between wines. I need to drink, see, have paracetamol before bed. I had all these strategies to make myself a better drinker. But I realized that day that that was never, ever going to work for me. And I had 12 weeks of therapy and I unraveled the reasons why I drank and found out all of my reasons why and was able to walk out of there 12 years. 12 weeks later and say, right, I'm never going to drink again. And you haven't? I haven't, no. That was six years ago. At all? Nothing. It's a relief. It's an utter relief to be able to be someone that doesn't drink anymore. Like it's taken me a while to get to that point, but my preoccupation with it, the planning of it, when am I going to do it? Who am I going to do it with? Is there enough booze in the house? Is that wine glass full enough for me? You know, classic classic drinker behavior I now recognize as a problem and for me it's an utter relief to be somebody who never ever has to drink again and never has to numb out this wonderful life that we have and I Mm -hmm. since have had another baby in my sobriety like the first year I got pregnant again which was a total surprise because I was sort of 42 and yeah it's all been you know, it's been up and up ever since I started the podcast. I started writing. It was something that I've always enjoyed. And I started writing the day that I gave up. I thought, no, I don't know anyone who's given up drinking before, you know, they end up on a dialysis machine. I feel like I need to tell this story because I thought you had to reach all these rock bottoms and you had to really be suffering to deserve healing. But what I found was that I I did deserve it and it was bad enough for me to seek support for it. So therefore I felt that that was a message that I wanted to share. Mm. So, and and we talked about your career and you said you really didn't have one, right? But look at you with your blog, with your writing, with your podcasts. I mean, there, so you obviously writing comes naturally to you. Like, has it come naturally to you or? I always enjoyed writing. That's what I was going to ask. So yeah. You were obviously good at it, but never recognised that it's a tool that you could do something with. Talk to me about that. Well, there's something they say that like drinking blocks creativity. And before I started drinking, I loved writing. And I was always that person if there was a family gathering, you know, get, get Vic to write one of her poems. And I always could make people laugh with the way that I wrote. I remember just writing emails even when I was traveling. I used to enjoy constructing an email in a way that it was almost like a there was a, a story and a punchline. And my family are all storytellers. It's all about the good story, making people laugh. You know, and I used to listen to my dad listening to Spike Milligan and Derek and Clive and all Monty Python. And so I've always been interested in comedy and writing. I even did film and script writing when I was at uni, but I I just numbed it out for years and years. And something that happens with sobriety is that you you almost fall back into what you enjoyed before as a child. And I definitely have, like, I do pottery now and I do all sorts of weird stuff that I never imagined doing. But I enjoy the process of it and it is something that has happened. I I actually wrote a series of children's books when I was pregnant with my first child. I thought it was the hormones of the pregnancy that were making me want to write. I realised now it was the fact that I wasn't drinking. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a, a kind of aspect of me numbing my abilities for many, many years. And since I gave up, 
I just, I just didn't even know I had this person living inside my body. It's like chalk and cheese. We are so different. Um, and that's why I'm, I think why I'm able to tell my terrible booze stories is because I see that person as somebody in my past that was under the influence of a very potent drug. And now I self see myself as a very, very different person. So I have, I have no regret or shame. And I'm very happy to tell all my stories of drug taking and promiscuity and all of that, because it feels like somebody that's separate from me. Mm. Talk to me about the podcast. How, how did that happen? It was just a kind of was a natural progression. I met a girl called Lucy who'd given up drinking like three days after meeting me. She just needed to meet a sort of like-minded person who was questioning their alcohol intake. And she had done podcasts before and she was like, do you want to do one together? I was like, I've been trying to put one together, a drunk mummy, sober mummy one on my own. And I I needed somebody else who'd done it before because it's, as you know, it's quite, quite a learning curve starting it a is. podcast. Yeah. And she just happens to be brilliantly funny. She'd given up drinking and I'd been sort of sober for two or three years by then. But she shared her story in real time, what was going on with her from week to week. And we based the podcast around her giving up drinking. And it really resonated with a lot of people. She then finished the podcast about a year and a half ago. She felt like she'd told her story. And I'd met this guy called Hamish who was a drinker, a very normal drinker. So I said to him, look, he's a radio presenter, so kind of the perfect person to come on board, really charismatic, but a drinker. So I said to him, if you're going to be on my podcast as a presenter, I want you to give up drinking. So he gave up drinking for the podcast. So now we log the journey of a normal drinker, which has actually been incredibly fascinating because he is experiencing all the same benefits that anybody else would. So really the podcast is based around anyone that's ever had a hangover. It's not about extreme drinking. It's about, look, this is what happens to your brain and your body if you take this poison out. But we do it in a very comedic way. He's ever so funny. He loves a mankini. He's always naked. It's quite disturbing. But (laughs) He's experienced all the same stuff that I have. He's becoming like this sober guru now, which we really laugh at because he was really conscious about giving up. He was like, oh, what, what's the point? You know, I'm not going to experience anything. You know, you were a problem drinker and I'm not. So how are people going to resonate with that? But what's happened is it's opened the funnel up to everyone and gone, well, this is the impact being a normal drinker has on my health, like raising your anxiety 25% for your entire life if you have one glass of wine a week. Like the stats on how it raises your your, um, anxiety are incredible. There's an amazing Huberman Lab podcast on alcohol, which I really recommend to anybody who's starting out. But yeah, so Hamish has just stepped into sobriety as someone that would never have considered it before. And he's just a great guy to hang out with. He's really inspiring and really, really confident. And so, yeah, we just won the best well-being podcast in Australia at the end of Fantastic. last year. Yeah. We just reached 2 million downloads. And I think wow. there's people need humor in this realm. Like all of the sobriety podcasts are really kind of down. This is serious. But, you know, alcohol is serious, but sobriety doesn't have to be. So we're kind of trying to bring a lot of British-based toilet humour in there, which we both find absolutely hilarious. Well, and do it you seems know, other people yeah, do. you'll know this. This podcast is, you know, really successful, which I'm so happy about. And people are often ask me why. And, do you know, and I think it's the same for you. You have to, I say to people all the time, you have to give away some of yourself. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. It's brutally Otherwise, honest. It's got to be. Otherwise, yeah. there's no point, you know, that yeah. 
Yeah, they could go and read a newspaper. It's got to be personal, you know. And when I talk to people, I often say to them on the podcast, if they're a little bit nervous, I say, just tell me the story of you. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah. And it's so nice to be able to be honest. People say that. It's so relatable. It's so honest. That's why we love it. But for me... I don't know how another, I don't know another way to be anymore. So it's kind of like sometimes mm. like when we're recording, I'll say something and I'll go, oh God, Hamish, you've got, you've got to edit that bit out. That is too much. I <laughs> say I'm that like, all the time. <laughs> because you feel like you're in a room with your mate. I don't yeah. feel like, yeah. I, yeah. like there's people even listening. So I kind of take that out of the, mm. <laughs> you know, and just go, well, I, it's just me and my mate in a room. And it was the same with Lucy because we just find ourselves laughing our heads off. Like we're just two mates having a laugh mm. and that's why people like it. So, so we're so happy that it gives people that joy. We get emails every day from people mm. saying, I'm in my car, in a car park, or I'm walking on the beach with my dog and I'm crying with laughter. And that, it's like our secret weapon because mm. it gets people thinking, like we come in there with the laughs, but people go, actually, these people are laughing like normal. Maybe I don't need alcohol to laugh like they laugh. Mm. And that's kind of our underhand message that we're giving across is like, this doesn't have to be boring. This doesn't have to be awkward. You know, that we say- It doesn't feel have boring. to be preachy. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have, have to be- It doesn't have to be preachy. No, yeah. we're not telling you what to do. We're telling you this is what happened to us. Yeah, and it made this us is our happier. experience. Yeah, and maybe it, that might be the same for you. Well, we've got to wrap up, but I just want to tell you one thing, and this is what oh. I love about it, is the interaction and how people, because I feel that podcasts, there's an intimacy to them as well as a listener, yeah. you know, but I'm in San Francisco, as you know, but my colleague Jane sent me, uh, she said, oh, there's a card here for you, a, like a, a gift card from a friend of yours. I'll take a photograph and send it to you. And I thought, what friend would send me a card to the office? Like, isn't that strange? Anyway, whatever. Thank you. And she sent it to me. It was two pages of writing. It was absolutely beautiful. Do you know, I did not know that person. Amazing. Yeah. But she had listened to my podcast. She'd known what kind of year I had last year. Oh, how lovely. Yeah. There's that intimacy with them, isn't there? Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, we can question ourselves. Like sometimes mm. I go, God, is this a bit much? But like when mm. I get those emails from all over the world every day with someone who's driving across bloody America in their car mm. listening to us, it does keep me motivated. Like Absolutely. sometimes I get trolls emailing me saying, oh, you're just an alcoholic or you're just this or you're just that. And I do get disheartened. I do feel sad when people say horrible Mm. things to me. But all I'm doing is telling a story. And when people make the effort, like I got a video from a lady this week saying, I just had to reach out to say thank you. Like the podcast, it changes people's lives. You don't realise when we're in in our podcast studio feeling overwhelmed, like we're talking too much and that we're sharing too much. But then again, then you get one of those messages like you did and it's like, I know I'm doing the right thing. This is the Mm. right thing for me to be doing. And you've got to try and ignore the rest. It's Mm. hard, but you've just got to keep going on, moving on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and the memoir is great. It's out now. It's called A Thousand Wasted Sundays. Victoria, thank you so much for your time. It was so lovely to meet you all over the way in San Francisco. Thanks so much for having me on. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. 
Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.